two quick warnings before we get into the first story for tonight. The story deals with um, existentialism, the worry of the end of the world or the idea that nothing really matters. Um, and kind of connected to that, the story does involve suicide. It's not graphic in its description, but it is very blunt. If either one of those things are something you struggle with or don't feel comfortable listening to, feel free to skip to the timestamp seen on screen. Can I take your picture? Larissa sat a few feet away from me on the gray velvet sofa and as I aimed my iPhone toward her. I stared at the screen intently for a moment before shifting my focus, looking over the brim of the phone at her defeated and hopeless state portrayed by bloodshot eyes. What for? I don't think it'll be a very good one. She found it difficult to speak above the tone of a depressing mumble. Not exactly prepared for a photo shoot right now. Stop, you look beautiful. The jipper tone in my voice was a deceiving attempt to bring some semblance of elation to the bleak reality we had learned of our existence. It's not insecurity, you know that. Her looks were always something Larissa was confident in. That certainly wasn't the source of her discontent. Normally we take pictures of happy times that we want to look back on and reminisce over. But neither of us were happy at that moment. Her face was a cemented lump of apathy that wouldn't be going away anytime soon. Why would you want a picture of me like this? Because I want to remember what you look like. She'd be gone soon. And there was nothing I could do to stop it. I really can't say I blame her. Life had no purpose or meaning anymore. I was finding it difficult not to leave this world myself... The eye in the sky destroyed it all. Some said it was God. Technically, they're right, although their interpretation of God is a bit skewed and thus incorrect. They are just making excuses. I wish I could live in bliss like that. Enlightenment is punishment. Larissa and I were co-workers at Caltech. I was head of the astronomy and physics department there, a position I held for the last eight years, where I was lucky enough to fuel and satisfy my fascination with celestial objects for a living. Since I was a young boy, I looked to the sky in awe and dreamed of a weightless, floating journey through the stars. At night, I'd sit on my porch with my knees pulled up against my chest and peanut butter and jelly sandwich in hand, looking at the moonlight shining on the trees and the sparkling fireworks hovering above the earth. A career in astronomy is all I ever wanted. Larissa came on board a little less than a year ago. For the past six months, we've been something a little more than co-workers. Romantic interests, I guess. When you reach a certain age, you sort of stop putting labels on things. I suppose you could call her my girlfriend. It sounds so childish, saying that at my age. Whatever you want to call it, Larissa had become another perk of my job. At 43, I'd never married, never really had a serious relationship since my 20s. 
routine, order, and the stars were all the gratification I needed. It wasn't until I saw Larissa that I realized how lonely I'd become. She was eight years younger than I and had the same thirst for the stars as I did. It was all we ever talked about. With me being somewhat more experienced in the field, she clung to my every word, eating them up like she was putting sunshine in her veins. One night, I invited her back to my quaint home in Simi Valley. We sat side by side on the grass next to the large oak tree in my backyard with peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, pointing out our favorite constellations. She rested her head on my shoulder, and I knew that I'd found the person I could share every part of my life with. I loved her, even though I couldn't bring myself to say it. Everything was right in the world. It all came together in harmonious delight when Larissa took over my heart. She filled a void I didn't know I had and quickly became my satellite, going wherever I went and running circles around me. All that changed two weeks ago, when Keck Observatory contacted me for a consultation regarding an unusual discovery. The observatory, located at the summit of Mauna Kea in Hawaii, was managed by Caltech and the California Association for Research in Astronomy. The site housed the two most renowned and scientifically productive telescopes in the world, capable of reaching the outermost areas of space. Each telescope sat mounted on Mauna Kea, as two large spheres, 33 feet in diameter. Just after I'd come on board in 2008, the telescopes at Keck captured the first images of exoplanets within an exosolar system 129 light years away from Earth. The main star was named HR 8799. The visuals took over 100 years to reach our planet, and we took pictures of it like a group of excited tourists. What did you find? I asked Nora, the director of advancement at Keck, when she called. Her voice trembled on the other end. I... I don't know. It's... I'm sending you a picture. You wouldn't believe me if I told you. Sweetheart, just tell me. I heard a deep breath flow into the receiver. It's... It's an eye. You mean the Helix Nebula? I asked, instantly reminded of the formation that looked eerily similar to an eyeball, resulting in the nickname the Eye of God. Oh, that's similar. Only much larger. And it's moving. Moving? Like orbiting or something? More like it's... Like it's looking at things. The pupil is moving. My face contorted from confusion. What? It didn't make sense to me when I first heard it. And now, looking back... I wish I'd just ignored it and went on with my life. But I suppose that's the nature of humanity, isn't it? We're all curious and desperate for answers. Nora sent me two pictures of what was observed through the telescope shortly after we hung up. The first picture appeared to show ionized gas surrounding an interstellar medium, creating the illusion of an eye. It was unique, although it was certainly nothing never seen before. But the second picture 
showed the medium moved slightly to the left, as though it were a pupil looking around and studying the universe. I wasted no time and booked myself and Larissa on a flight to Hawaii. Part of my rush was the anticipation of studying the odd formation and trying to determine why it was moving. Larissa could help decipher its origins. Plus, it was a nice excuse to take a trip to Hawaii together on company money. The next day, after we landed, Larissa and I drove up to the access road in a car I rented up to the summit. At the top, we were just above the clouds. Mauna Kea is the highest point in all of Hawaii, and it's considered the best location in the world for massive telescopes like these. There's no obstruction blocking the view. I'd visited the site a few times since I took over the astronomy department, and each visit was breathtaking. Nora greeted us as we parked and led us through the observatory directly into the control room where a monitor was displaying the eye in the sky. In front of the monitor sat a couple of young men I'd never met before operating the controls. The pupil had moved further to the left since the last picture was taken. How much time has passed between the two pictures you sent me? I asked Nora. A couple of days? It's moving very slowly. Possibly. It could also be moving incredibly fast. We're just observing a different gravitational time dilation through the telescope. How far away is this constellation? Nora took a deep breath and exhaled, maintaining her steady eyes fixed on mine. Forty-five billion light-years. Huh? That's, that's inconceivable. The farthest object ever recorded is Galaxy Max 0647JD at 13.3 billion light-years away. And that was with the Hubble telescope. Keck doesn't have that functionality. Well, it does now. We enhanced its mirrors two months ago to increase magnification capabilities. My brows uncontrollably shot to the middle of my forehead. I don't recall hearing the board of directors approve such a thing. They didn't. This was a privately funded experiment. One that worked. Who funded it? Larissa chimed in. I'm sorry, that's classified information. I looked up at the thick metal beams and pipes of pressurized hydraulic fluids over our heads that held the massive telescope in place with indignant jealousy. The furthest reaching telescope ever created was partially owned by the company I held a relatively high position with. It was within my fingertips, yet I hadn't even the slightest knowledge of it. Optical instruments like this were invented to expand humanity's knowledge and answer some of the most complex and mysterious questions about the origin of everything in existence. And they were keeping the wonders of the universe a secret. So basically, you have the most powerful scientific invention ever created by humanity, and you didn't think it was necessary to tell anyone. It was an experiment. The funding was enough to cover the upgrade and reversion if it didn't work. Part of the agreement was secrecy. We only started using it last week. We wanted to be sure it worked before making any kind of announcement. This is not some rich kid's Tonka truck, Nora. You should have gotten approval. Or at least mentioned it to someone. There's something I haven't told you about this eye. 
Nor continued ignoring my discontent. We saw something else. My intrigue felt like a rush of adrenaline. What? One of the young men turned in his swivel chair and locked his wide eyes with me. God. I instantly rolled my eyes. Throughout history, when mankind has encountered something unexplainable, it's attributed to some sort of God or supernatural force only to be given a logical scientific explanation many years later. Why would this be any different? We don't know that, Tim. Nora shot at him. What the hell is he talking about? Larissa questioned. I supported her demand. Indeed, what nonsense is this young man referring to? Nora resigned momentarily and turned her head sideways to address Tim. Turn on the infrared. Tim flicked a switch on the control panel, and about 30 seconds later, the outline of a face surrounded the eye. Shades of red and orange overlapped each other, clearly displaying a nose, a mouth, and a second eye that was covered by a winking eyelid. And just beyond the eye, I could faintly make out more smaller infrared outlines. My world had crumbled at the sight. One of my worst fears was reality. Turn that monitor off right now, I ordered in a low growl. Tim sat motionless in his chair, frozen in perplexity. Now! He jumped at my outburst and fumbled to find the switch. What's gotten into you? Nora demanded, squinting at me. Who else knows about this? The five of us in this room and ten other people. They all said it was God, too. Keep it that way. Tell no one. Tell that piggy bank of yours modifications didn't work and revert the telescope back to its original state. Why? What is it? I looked at Nora with a stern eye. Humanity will tear itself apart over this. Is it... God? Tim's hopeful expression was like that of a child. I couldn't take that away. Yes. It wasn't a giant alien, if that's what you're all thinking. An alien is a creature from outer space. These figures showing up on the infrared display weren't in outer space. They were beyond it. Nora and her team had built a telescope that had the capability of reaching the end of our universe. 45 billion light years. That's where everything ends. What's beyond that has been a complete mystery. Until now. It's something I was frightened of when I conceived the thought in 2004 after reading an article by Jim Holt proposing the idea of universe creation. Three years later, Lancaster University successfully created an entire universe in a test tube, simulating the Big Bang with low-energy whirlpools of helium. The result was a functioning universe, no larger than a marble. 
I'd feared that our universe was created this way. And that day in Keck Observatory confirmed my fears. I saw our creators. Everything we've ever known to exist is all just a mediocre science experiment. At any minute they could pull the plug on it and wipe us all away. We're living at their will inside of a test tube somewhere. We left Keck and returned to our hotel shortly after I pushed the telescope away from the eye and hoped it would never be found again. Larissa pestered me all night in our hotel room, doing all she could to force an explanation from me. I caved eventually, telling her about Lancaster's test tube and how its origin is the same as ours. She wept for the rest of the night. All we know, all we believe, everything is a lie. The greatest lie ever told. I can't live in a world without meaning, she said on my couch, crying a few days after we returned from Hawaii. I don't want to wake up every day and think, this is it. It's today the day they end their experiment and kill us all. That's not a life I want to live. Don't let the stars die earlier than they're intended to, I urged. Let me show you the sky, just one more time. Her bottom lip quivered as a tear ran down her cheek. Even though you're here with me now, I'm light years away from you. That night, while I was asleep, Larissa snuck outside tied a noose to a thick branch of the large oak tree in my backyard and hanged herself. Her side of the bed was empty and cold in the morning. When I extended my arm to her side and found it vacated, I, I, I already knew she'd taken her own life. Each night since, I sit on my back porch with her picture displayed on my phone, staring at both the stars and the shadows they create over my backyard. One shadow in particular dominates my focus. Deep down, I know it's unlikely the eye will see her, but personal conviction is a powerful prospect that shields truth. So I leave her there oscillating in the wind, a dismal plea of desperation. The ominous scarecrow for our creators. They called it collective meditation. A video chat meditation and wellness course for people who didn't leave their house much or didn't have access to those kinds of classes locally. It was free, and I was bored, so I signed up for it and convinced my best friend Benny to do it with me. The first time was kind of... weird. Not because I'd never tried meditation before, but the whole awkward weirdness of doing it in a formalized setting with other people only made stranger when you were seeing each other over the internet instead of being in the same room. 
Benny was even more nervous than I was, asking me if it was optional to turn on its camera or if there was maybe a video we could watch instead. I told him no, that this class had very specific requirements. You had to be single and live by yourself, be between the ages of 20 and 50, and you had to show up virtually with sound and video at every session or you were out of the class. We were actually on a video chat then, too. His house was 30 miles away, and it wasn't uncommon that we'd chat sometime during the week. When I started telling him all the rules, I could feel him overreacting, even before his eyes grew large. Shit, what kind of requirements are those? You have to be single and live alone? Are they going to come to home invade us while we're meditating? I could hear his laughter in his voice, but he seemed nervous. Rolling my eyes, I shook my head at him. No, it's nothing like that. They explain when you sign up that this course is funded by a research grant. They're trying to test different techniques of long-distance meditation together. They call it collective meditation. And to get reliable results, they're trying to control certain variables. I think it's just some of those. When he looked unconvinced, I gave him a small shrug. Besides, if we don't like it, we don't have to keep doing it. I was actually less sure about it after that first session, not because of feeling awkward, but because nothing much happened. There were 20 of us in the group, and the leader, a woman that just referred to herself as Amy, had us all go around and tell about ourselves. After that, we spent half an hour with our eyes closed, with the repeated instruction to think about yourselves. You are complete selves down to the smallest detail, the smallest molecule. Think about the cells of your hair, the color of your eyes and eyelashes, the smell and texture of your skin. Think about how your hands and face look, how your body looks to you. Let your mind be an invisible camera, capable of amazing precision, roaming over every inch of you. And then, you move inside now. Imagine the wet interior darkness of your body as you see your muscles and fat, tendons and organs, veins and blood and electricity. See all of that throughout your body as you would imagine they are, and then push past that, moving deeper, deeper until your eyes adjust to that inner dark where your mind and your heart and your soul reside. Move close to them and take them in with your truest sight. When that was finally over, I looked at the laptop's clock and saw that over an hour had passed. I was surprised, but I guessed it made some kind of sense. I felt off-balance and odd, like I'd just woken suddenly from a deep sleep. When we got off the call with the promise to be back for the Friday session, I was already preparing my casual agreement with Benny that this wasn't for us. That was pretty awesome. We were on the phone just now, but... I still had to hide the surprise in my voice. Oh, you really liked it? I could tell the excitement in his voice was genuine. Yeah, didn't you? I mean, it felt really cheesy at first, but... I don't know, the longer we did it, the more I felt connected to myself, and... This sounds dumb, but more at peace. Like I was part of something bigger, too. When I didn't respond right away, he spoke up, his voice slightly concerned. You did like it, right? Uh, sure, yeah. Yeah, it was cool. 
I kind of expected Benny to still forget, or flake, on the Friday session by then, but he texted me twice that morning to make sure I remembered to get on. This time it was still weird, but we spent our session with the other members, pairing off for five minutes at a time, talking to another, being encouraged to be mindful of how they looked and sounded and how speaking with them made us feel. It was very uncomfortable at first, but by the end of the session I felt like I'd made new friends, and even in that brief time I felt like I'd gotten to know them better than some people I'd known for years. Over the next two months our numbers dwindled to 16, but out of that 16, everyone had become very close. We were taught to see ourselves as connected and to learn how to see and feel things from each other's point of view. As we progressed, we did start doing more actual meditation too, both singly in pairs and as part of a larger group. I'm not sure when things changed, but they did. A passing from one atmosphere to another, from air to water, or no, not water, maybe amniotic fluid, a world where you can breathe and everything is tied to every other thing. I thought about the group every day, and even with our increased sessions to four times a week, I think the off days would have been unbearable if I hadn't had a dim sense of them out there, all of us tied to one another as we worked and slept and waited for the next session. As for the sessions themselves, they were becoming something different as well. Amy had started preparing us for shared spaces, the idea being that by all meditating on the same places or experiences simultaneously, we could exist in the same spiritual and psychic space together. A few weeks before, I would have laughed at the idea, but I wasn't laughing now. Each session filled me with this terrible but wonderful excitement. The things I would see had started taking on a reality and texture the closer we got to that shared space. I could smell colors and taste the emotions of others in our group. I had the prescient sense of the light just around the bend, the wonder just beyond this inner space that had trapped me for so long. Just another session or two and we'd... Do you realize we haven't hung out in almost a month? Benny called me out of the blue as we were leaving a session, and while I was frustrated to have my warm feeling of joy interrupted by the phone, I figured he just wanted to talk about how great the course was going. So, when he started with that question, I didn't really know what to say. Uh, no. <laughs> no, that can't be right. He sounded like he was chewing something. I hated when he chewed and talked. No, it is. We are going to get lunch a couple of weeks ago, but I got food poisoning the night before. And then last week I was going to come over for movie night, but you bailed on to the last minute. I did not. I just realized I needed more time to work on my actualization technique before session the next day. Actualization techniques were what Amy called her methods of imagining a whole reality outside of the physical world or your own mind and imagination. One of these shared spaces that we could all picture and believe in so powerfully and completely that our belief could make it real. It was important work. And if Bindi didn't realize that, then... That's another thing. The course work is great and all, I mean. It's weird and kind of new-agey, sure, but I do see the benefits. We're part of something special. The group is something special. 
Sure, yeah. And I'm not saying we're in a cult or something, but I do feel like whatever we're gaining in our connection to the group, maybe we're losing that between you and me. I opened my mouth to respond, but thought better of it. Maybe he was right. I felt angry and defensive that he was questioning what we were a part of, but is that a good thing? Should I be so committed to something and not be willing to look at it objectively? I felt a twist of nervous fear in my stomach. But I couldn't lose it. Not now. Especially not now, when we were so close to the next stage. Hand trembling slightly against my cheek, I tried to keep my voice light. I see. Uh, I, I see what you mean. Tell you what, let's get through this week's session, and if Amy doesn't have us into something new and cool by the end of that, maybe we take a break. How does that sound? Benny paused for a while, and I could feel him pondering it, wrestling with his emotions as he weighed his options. It was funny, because in some ways I knew him so much better now, could almost know what he was thinking before he said it. But in other ways, well, in other ways he'd become like a stranger to me. So when I felt his fear and doubt and love for me collided together, writhing like snakes in his chest, my empathy was profound, but I felt only the slightest stir of compassion. And when he finally agreed to continue, I primarily felt relief. Sixteen was a good number for the group, after all. We visited our shared space together for the first time that Sunday night. I don't have the words to really describe how meaningful it was. Being in that place that we all knew and loved so well that we had breathed into life with Amy's guidance, it was a sense of ownership and belonging that I'd never known in my physical life. And I know what you're probably thinking. We're just all imagining the same place, or think we are, and we're tricking ourselves into thinking there's something more going on, because it's absurd to believe that we can create real spaces with our minds, or that we can truly connect with people on the other side of the country, or even the world. All I can say is that your lack of belief is immaterial. The paucity of your vision doesn't change anything. The hands in the deepest deep don't require your faith to grasp, and the eyes in the highest heavens you see even if you cannot fathom them. Amy taught us those words, and at first I didn't understand them. They seemed haughty and strange and silly. Then she led us into our shared space that Sunday, and I began to weep. We were all there together. I could see and feel and touch and taste, and I was with my group. More than just friends or family, we were part of each other in a more profound way than just emotion or thought. And we were all weeping, all laughing and screaming in joy and excitement as we walked arm in arm across the field of sunflowers. It was on our fourth trip to the field the following week that we first saw the other. Rosalind saw it first, and when she felt fear, we all felt fear. We all turned toward the source of the ripple, the disturbance of our tranquility, the invader of our sacred space. It looked like a man. 
but it was not. You need to understand that in our refined and shared experience, we'd come to perceive things differently, especially when we were in meditation, and most certainly when we were in this place. Benny had joked that being in the field must be what it feels like to be God. And while he was laughing when he said it, there was a jagged, fearful shakiness to it that I felt trembling all the way to his core like the jumping strands of a spider web. He wasn't wrong, though. We saw more together, and in this place, and looking into that thing, it looked like nothing. Not darkness or the lack of something, but like a hungry abyss, and an absence, an abscess, an appetite. An appetite with flashing eyes and gnashing teeth set into a rotting hole in our beautiful world that had legs and hands and a terrible laugh as it began to run toward us all. That's when we began to scream. We'd become so lost in that world over time that our first fear response was to run away rather than pull ourselves free. It was only after Beverly was run down that Benny started yelling for us to step back, step back, which was our words for pulling ourselves away from each other and our shared dream. But it didn't work. It was impossible. We could always leave when and where we wanted. We were the masters here, after all. And at the end of the day, however real this place felt, if we're honest, our bodies were still back in. Another one was pulled down in the sunflowers. Tony, I think. He gave a muffled yell, and then the thing was on him. Tears of anger and fear streaming down my face, I turned away and kept running, forcing myself to focus. Step away. Just step away. Step away. Two more. Then another three. The field went on without end, and it was just picking us off one at a time. Another hundred yards of running and crying and trying to step back and finding myself still trapped in the field. Another six were gone. I should leave four more, including myself and Amy, always the odd woman out, always the leader and anchor of the group, but outside its number. But I hadn't seen Amy since we started running. It was possible that the thing had gotten her, but I hadn't felt her fear and pain and terror in the way I had the others as they'd gone down. I couldn't feel her at all. I let out a gasp as I got Benny. Even after everything, the pain of losing him was worse than the others after all. I had to keep running. I had to. No. I needed to stop. Running wasn't going to work. I needed to stop, close my eyes, and force myself to really step back. My breath was ragged as I slowed to a stop. I shouldn't even really be breathing in that place if I didn't want, but... I didn't stop my side from aching as I wrapped, shaking hands around myself and forced my eyes to close as I focused on stepping back. Behind me, I could feel it getting closer. I could feel the terror that Aaron felt as it reached out for her. I had to hurry, had to hurry before it got to me. I had to step back. I opened my eyes. I was still in the field of sunflowers, and the thing was standing before me now, staring down at me as I began to scream. I went to run again, but it shoved me roughly onto the ground, laughing as it climbed on top of me, its impossible lack of form heavy and cold and ever-shifting as it straddled me and sank what must be its face close to mine. 
I went to beg it, to tell it I would do whatever it wanted if I just could please go. When its head shot forward, something hard and rancid pressing against my lips as an icy tongue shoved its way into my mouth and snaked down my throat. For a moment I flailed and gagged, knowing that I was about to die, the mantra of survival drumming in my mind and heart and soul as I felt my core begin to tear free from whatever mornings they had left. I'll do anything, anything, anything. I know you will. The answer ripped through me, even as the thing on top of me and the ground beneath me disappeared. I was back in my living room, laying on the floor in a rancid puddle of my own piss and shit, my coffee table and lamp broken from where I'd flailed around as my body prepared to die. When I was able, I started to crawl. That was all months ago. I knew that most of the others had come back too. What it seemed like the thing killing them had been. Well, I didn't know what it was, but I could feel them alive out there, even Benny. Only Amy and Beverly seemed untraceable if I closed my eyes and reached out. It may seem strange that we didn't talk or check on each other, but we all knew what we all knew. And even then, we knew that something was wrong, that something was wrong, and had found us and joined us, unless he'd been part of our group all along. I still wondered about Amy, after all, and what her role in all this had really been. For a long time, we maintained our distance from each other, and every time I thought about reaching out to someone, another person would disappear. It was like seeing a light disappear on a distant shore. My group was winking out, one by one, and if we didn't do something soon, that dark would consume us all, for as we well knew, everything was connected. So it was that, the day, I picked up the phone to call Benny. At that very moment, he knocked at my door. I should have known something was wrong before I opened the door, but I was frazzled and stretched thin by worry and fear, and I could still sense Benny on the other side of the door when I threw down my phone and ran to it. That familiar comfort was so powerful that I'd already hugged him and invited him in before I realized my mistake. When he shut the door, I never considered trying to make a run for it. Benny was already bigger and stronger than I was, and whatever was living in him now, I couldn't sense exactly what it was, but I could feel it there in him, peering out at me like a hungry owl. He laughed as he took my arm and guided me into the living room, sitting me down gently on the sofa. He sat in an opposite chair. It took me to this point to realize how he was dressed. A dark gray suit, sharply pressed with a silver tie pin and black cufflinks that glittered when he moved Benny's long-fingered hands. Bile running up in my throat, I gasped out a question. What are you? The thing looked like Benny and smiled at me warmly. If I couldn't feel some of what it was, if I couldn't hear echoes of the real Benny still trapped in there and terrified, I might have been fooled into thinking it was actually being friendly. When it spoke, however, the coldness of its tone would have broken any such spell. 
Some call me Trogon, it chuckled. <laughs> Others call me the elegant Trogon. He leaned toward me with Benny's face. Do you know what that means? I started to shake my head and then stopped myself. I suddenly had a memory of the summer I spent with my grandmother as a child. She lived in Arizona, and we'd spent several hot afternoons bird-watching, which accounted to me looking through an old bird book while she drove around sipping gin. But something... The elegant trogon, it's, it's a bird, isn't it? Benny's face lit up, the corners of his mouth jerking up into a broader grin that might even seem natural if he didn't know him. That's exactly right. A funny little bird. Ornithologists call them secondary cavity nesters. He drew down his face into a mock look of dismay. Sounds fairly unseemly, but what it really means is that it likes to live in holes made by others. He pursed his lips. I can appreciate that. Look, I... Please, just... His eyes grew hard. Don't interrupt. I'm trying to teach you something. When it was satisfied with my shaking silence, it continued. The thing is, I'm no bird. Not an elegant traga, not even a lark. His mouth twisted momentarily as though he tasted something sour. I need a much bigger place to live, for one thing. And for another, I... Well, I stay so hungry. The thing gave a small sigh. No, it's the first name, just Old Trogon. That fits much better, I'm afraid. It's what the Greeks used to call me. The Trogon. The Gnar. Why are you telling me all this? His expression darkened. Because I'm already halfway through your little group. Because unless you want to feel my teeth from the inside for the next few months, I suggest you do like your friend Amy did and recruit more people to join the party. You know, create a buffer. I forced myself to meet his eyes. What happened to Amy? He gave me a wide, gleaming shark of a smile. She retired comfortably to Florida, of course. He paused, waggling Benny's eyebrows at me. Or I hate her anyway. How does either scenario impact the necessity for you to find more people if you don't want to become my little nesting hole down the line? I gave a trembling shrug. I guess it doesn't. No, it doesn't. With that, he stood and headed for the door. I was desperate for him to get out, but I was also just desperate. Asking him to wait, I stopped just short of calling him Benny, the name lodging in my throat as I felt my friend screaming for me in some inner chamber in that thing. When he turned back, his expression was cold, but... curious. Yes? How do I get people to make space for you, like Amy did? It wrinkled Benny's nose like it smelled something bad. I always thought that whole meditation, social media, whatever, was kind of lame. Who wants that nowadays, right? People want fucking and death. They want to be entertained. And so long as they think about me, for some of them, it'll create a connection. 
a little hole I can start to burrow into when time is right. But what does that look like? I was terrified of making me angry, but I might not have another chance to ask what to do. What should I try? Grimacing, it shrugged. I don't know. Be creative. Use your impending doom as motivation if you like. Or don't, and I'll just eat you and find someone else who's smarter. It started to turn away again when it stopped, raising a finger as though testing the wind or declaring a discovery. Looking over its shoulder, it gave me a gleeful leer. I know what you can do. I felt the deepest part of me shriveling under that gaze. What? He snickered and opened the front door, calling back to me as he went into the night. <laughs> Tell a story. <laughs>